One of the things we've seen in the book of Hebrews is the value of remembering heroes of the faith. I wonder if you've ever heard of Thomas Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers lived from 1780 to 1847, and he was a Scottish minister, professor of theology, political economist, and a leader of both the Church of Scotland and the Free Church of Scotland. He has been called Scotland's greatest 19th century churchman. One of his biographers wrote, Thomas Chalmers was born in Fife, Scotland. He desired the call of a minister early in life, becoming an ordained Presbyterian pastor before his 20th birthday. Chalmers' intellectual gifts and rhetorical talent immediately gave him a reputation in his home parish as a powerful preacher. However, it was not until reading the work of English evangelical and slavery abolitionist William Wilberforce, that Chalmers was deeply convicted of his need for personal gospel faith and transformation. He was already serving as a pastor when he underwent this radical change in his theology, preaching, and life. In 1843, Chalmers and several hundred other pastors in the Church of Scotland broke with the church over issues of ecclesiology. They formed the Free Church of Scotland, with Chalmers serving as its first moderator, a position he held until his death. Though Chalmers was a brilliant scholar, his writing and preaching reflect most deeply an urgent desire for Christians to experience Christ's transformative power in all of life. He adamantly rejected the formalistic, unsupernatural theology of modernism that held sway with many in his time. Much like his contemporaries, Wilberforce and John Newton, Chalmers embraced a holistic view of the Christian life, exhorting believers to joyfully and sacrificially live out the life-changing implications of the gospel. One of his most famous messages that he delivered was entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And it was an exposition on 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In his message, he said there are basically two ways to get rid of the love of the world. One way is to be convinced that the world is not really all that great. It doesn't really satisfy. It's not enough. So it's to devalue, to rightly devalue the things of the world. But he said the other way to try to get rid of or expel the love of the world is to show that God is vastly more worthy of the heart's attachment, thus awakening a new and stronger affection that displaces the former affection of the world. He was arguing that a new and greater affection for God who is greater than the world, more satisfying 
than the world. Sweeter, better, more precious than the world. A new love and affection for him displaces or expels our affection for the lesser thing, the things of the world. I bring this to our attention because we are nearing the end of our sermon series through the book of Hebrews entitled, Hold Fast. And one of the things that we have seen is that the strategy of the author of Hebrews was to exalt the person and the work of Jesus Christ in order to help the Hebrew Christians hold fast to Jesus and his gospel rather than letting go and going back to their old Jewish way of life and the practices of the old covenant. The author of Hebrews is saying, look at Jesus. He is better. He is greater. He is the only high priest that you need. Therefore, don't go back to the old ways. So the author of Hebrews exalted the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, so that the Hebrew Christians would love Jesus Christ and hold fast to him. Our passage today is Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. In these verses, we receive practical instructions on living the Christian life as followers of Jesus. We see that there are external concerns, meaning how we relate to others, and internal concerns, meaning matters of the heart. In other words, these verses help us to have a holistic view of the Christian life and encourage us to joyfully and sacrificially live out the life-changing implications of the gospel. These exhortations regarding how we are to live out the implications of the gospel come after the portion of Hebrews where the author exalted the person and the work of Jesus. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6, and if you have a Bible, I encourage you to follow along. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. At the end of chapter 12, the passage Nate preached last week, we are told that a time is coming when the present world, the heavens and the earth, will be shaken. And when the world in its present form 
is shaken, the eternal things and the temporal things will be sifted. And all that will remain when this shaking happens, when this sifting happens, is that which cannot be shaken. And in the last two verses of chapter 12, we read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Praise God, we have been welcomed into Christ's kingdom, which is an unshakable kingdom. No one can oppose this kingdom. No one can thwart the purposes of our king. No one can remove us. This kingdom cannot be shaken. Based on this verse and a few others, James Bryan Smith, speaking to Christians, wrote, You are one in whom Christ delights and dwells. You live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. Boy, don't we need to hear that? At times we think the kingdom is trouble. We look at what is going on in the world around us. We look at the many ways in which the world around us is in rebellion against God, and we think the kingdom of God is trouble. Or we look at our own lives, the the peril that we are in, the, the trials and the suffering, and we think that we are in trouble, but we need to be reminded by God's word that God's word that we belong to a strong and unshakable kingdom. And no matter what is happening in the world around us, no matter what is happening in our lives, the kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. Christian, you may suffer. You may die an untimely death. But no matter what happens, ultimately, you are not in trouble. With this in mind, we turn our attention to the exhortations at the beginning of chapter 13. In chapter 13, the author gives us instructions and exhortations for how we are to live as followers of Jesus so that we will offer to God acceptable worship. The connection we need to see is that growing in our knowledge and understanding of the person and work of Jesus leads us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to know Jesus for who he is, who he has revealed himself to be. We don't want to create Jesus in our own image, but rather we want to go to him for who he truly is. And the book of Hebrews helps us to that end. The book of Hebrews helps us to know Jesus personally and intimately. And as we know Jesus, we are compelled to follow him, to obey him, to live our lives in a way that is good and right and pleasing to him. So chapter 13 begins, let brotherly love continue. The word continue carries the idea of endurance. As we have seen, the theme of endurance is prominent in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews told the Hebrew Christians, you have need of endurance. And one of the ways they needed to endure 
was in per- persevering and loving one another with brotherly, familial love. We need to endure in brotherly love because loving one another can be tough at times. At times, our love can grow cold. At times, we can be frustrated or annoyed with someone. We would rather just distance ourselves from someone who rubs us the wrong way, but we need to persevere and endure in brotherly love. The relationships within every local church ought to be characterized by brotherly love. Everyone who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ has been adopted and welcomed into God's family. What that means is this. If you are a Christian, God is your father. Christ is your elder brother. And fellow Christians are your brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been adopted and welcomed into God's family. We see this in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, where we read, while he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus established a new family on the basis of those who have been united to him by faith. Dear Christian, you are a part of God's family. God loves you with the perfect love of a father, and you have a perfect elder brother in Jesus Christ, and you have many brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are not a Christian, we are glad that you are here, and I want to be clear that you are always welcome here. We desire for you to be here. Our hope, our prayer for you is that you will come to know Jesus Christ. In coming to know Jesus Christ, we hope and pray that you will know personally for yourself the love of our Heavenly Father. There is nothing greater in the world than the love of our Father. And when you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, He welcomes you in. You receive His love. He forgives all your sins, past, present, and future. He loves you and delights in you. So if you're not a Christian, our hope and prayer for you is that you will believe in Christ and be saved. We are all in need of salvation. Every single one of us here has sinned against God. Every single one of us deserves his judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to him so that we can enjoy this relationship with him as our heavenly father. So friend, believe in Christ and be saved and know the love of this family. Some of us might have negative connotations when it comes to family. Some of us have experienced pain and brokenness, dysfunction within family. Most of us probably have to some degree or another. But God's family is different 
and that we have a Father who is perfect. We have a Father who loves us perfectly. When He disciplines us, He disciplines us for our good. He knows us. He knows every single thing about us. And he loves us and cares for us. And his steadfast love endures forever. Now that we have been welcomed into his loving family, we are to love one another with the same love with which he has loved us. We are to love one another with this familial love, with this brotherly love. Scripture has much to say about how we are to love one another. Jesus told his disciples, the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. And then in Scripture, we see a whole host of commands that we call the one another commands. Commands that describe how we, as the family of God, are to relate to one another. I encourage you to reflect on this. We have printed a list in the back. and the back table on your way out, you can grab one of these. It's just a list of the one another commands of Scripture that describe the ways that we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. They say things like be at peace with each other, love one another, be joined to one another, be devoted to one another, honor one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, counsel one another, greet one another, and so on. All these commands are meant to shape our lives together as the family of God. Every Christian belongs to the family. And we live out the reality that we belong to God's family with a particular group of people. A particular local church. When you've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, you are joined to God's family, his large family that spans across the globe and it spans through every generation. And we live out the reality that we've been joined to this huge, large family with a particular local family, people that we rub shoulders with, that we spend time with, that we get to know, people whose lives, people with whom we share our lives. We are meant to live out this reality that we belong to God's family with a particular group of people. And so we live out the reality of this familial love in the context of a local church, whereby we are committed to one another, whereby we pledge ourselves to one another. We formally commit ourselves to one another. One of the ways we love one another is through hospitality. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. The strangers he was referring to may have been traveling preachers or evangelists who went to different cities to proclaim the gospel and strengthen the churches. Michael Kruger writes, hospitality has always been one of the hallmarks of Christian communities. It is especially important in the early church, which was very mission-oriented. Even though travel could be dangerous and difficult in the ancient world, early Christians traveled a great deal. Such travel was motivated by the desire for networking among Christians as well as by a desire to spread the gospel to new people groups. These travelers are likely the strangers whom our author mainly has in view, Christian missionaries from other cities and communities who needed somewhere to stay. 
In those days, travel could be hard, and there were not many options for where someone could stay when they went to a different city. The inns in a particular town could be costly and were oftentimes places without good reputations. And so providing a place to stay was an important act of hospitality for Christians to share with other Christians, even, even Christians whom they didn't know. It was a very practical way to meet someone's need and to help further the spread of the gospel. Now, why did he say that by showing hospitality to strangers, some have entertained angels unawares? It's an interesting thing to say. Well, most likely this was a reference to Abraham and Lot, which we read about in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. In Genesis 18, Abraham welcomed three strangers and provided them with a meal. Two of them were angels, and the third was a theophany, the Lord himself. Then in Genesis chapter 19, Lot also welcomed the two angels. When they came to Sodom, they said they were going to stay in the town, but he urged them, don't do that. Come stay in my house. He was probably urgent because he knew that if they were to stay in the town square, they would be in danger based on what happened the following day. And so he showed hospitality to these strangers, probably unaware that he was showing hospitality to angels. I don't think the point of saying this was to motivate us to provide hospitality with the hope that we will receive an angelic visit, but to impress on us the importance of hospitality. Hospitality is important. It's important in the eyes of the Lord. And we may not recognize and understand how significant an act of hospitality may be in the eyes of the Lord. At, co- at its core, hospitality is using what the Lord has given you, your home, possessions, money, gifts, and skills to welcome others and meet their practical needs. We want to do this for one another. We want to use what the Lord has given us to welcome others, to care for others, to meet the practical need of others. I'm so grateful for the way I have seen this done within this church family. I am so grateful for the many ways that people humbly, sacrificially, out of the public view, have given of what they have have to help, support, encourage, and strengthen others. Brothers and sisters, I just want to say keep going in this. Persevere in this. Continue in this. Continue to love and serve one another. Consider to think about how you can use what God has given you to meet the practical needs of others, to encourage, strengthen, and build up others within the congregation. We also want to do this for missionaries, which again was likely the focus of verse 2. By God's grace, we have had the opportunity to do this as well. By God's grace, we've been able to support people doing various kinds of mission work and to help meet their practical needs. But I hope we will be challenged regarding how we can do this even more so. How can we support the work of missionaries? How can we meet practical needs? How can the Lord use us to this end to support them and to further the advance of the gospel? May the Lord use us to this end. We also see that uh, we also show brotherly love by having compassion for one another. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. It, is, it was not unusual for Christians to be mistreated or imprisoned for their faith in the first century. The Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was originally written were personally aware of this. 
We've already seen in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, where the author said, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Sometimes it is easy for us to have an out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude toward those who are suffering. But we want to guard against this. Instead, we want to have the mindset of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, which says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We want to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and bear one another's burdens. We want to have compassion for those who are suffering, recognizing that we are all part of the same body. So in the first three verses, he called on them to persevere in brotherly love, demonstrated through service. According to Jesus, showing hospitality to those in need and compassion toward those suffering are characteristics of those who belong to him. In Matthew chapter 25, he told the parable whereby uh, at the end of time, there will be a separating of the sheep and the goats. The separating of the sheep and the goats in the final judgment represents the separation of those who belong to him and those who do not belong to him. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 and 40, Jesus said, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So we see what is taught here in the first few verses of chapter 13 as a reflection of the teachings of Jesus. Providing hospitality, even for strangers, showing compassion to those who are suffering are characteristics and marks of those who belong to Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we need to demonstrate love through our service to one another. We also need to be pure of heart. In verses 4 and 5, the author addressed the problems of sexual immorality and greed. First, he said, let the marriage bed be held in high honor among all. In Genesis chapter 2, God reveals that he is the author of marriage. God is the one who created man. Male and female, he created them. He created man in his image, and in creating man in his image, he is the one who created maleness and femaleness. He created the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, different and yet complementary. And what a beautiful design. God's design of male and female is wonderful and beautiful and meant to be honored and celebrated. 
And what we see is that God brought the first man and the first woman together in the union of marriage. In Genesis 2, 24, uh, 2 through 20, uh, 2, 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In Scripture, we see that marriage is described as the covenant between a man and a woman, the coming together, a one flesh union. When Jesus was asked a question about divorce in Matthew 19, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. According to Jesus, the foundation for understanding marriage is found at the beginning of Genesis. It's found in God's design for marriage. It's found in God's design of creating man as male and female, different and complementary, so that they are able to come together in the one flesh union, the covenant of marriage. All scripture, including Jesus, has a high view of marriage. And we see that God designed sex for marriage. While the Bible affirms and celebrates sexual intimacy within the covenant of marriage, all sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is regarded as sexual immorality, contrary to God's will and his design. The culture in which the Hebrew Christians lived was known to be sexually immoral. It was common, for, it was common and accepted for husbands to have many mistresses. Prostitution was a common and accepted practice. Homosexuality was a common and accepted practice. And one of the things that set Christians apart in the first century was their sexual ethic. Rather than embracing the values and the practices of the world around them, they committed themselves to God's word, having a high view of marriage, recognizing God's design for marriage to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. So the author of Hebrews implored them to continue, to persevere in holding the marriage bed in high honor and keeping it undefiled. He went on to remind them that God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God is the righteous judge of all the earth. And God is the one who knows all things and he is the one who sees all things. Nothing escapes his purview. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And we are to be those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Walking in the fear of the Lord means that we seek to honor him and obey him and submit our lives to him, even in the quiet, private, secret moments of our lives, because we know that he sees what takes place in the secret. Nothing is hidden from him. And so when we rightly fear the Lord, we want to honor him and fear him, not only when other people are watching us, but even when no one is watching us, when no one can see what is taking place in our hearts and our minds and our lives. We know that God is gracious 
and merciful to forgive all our sexual sins as we go to Jesus for the forgiveness that we need. Because he loves us and forgives us, and because we love him and fear him, we, who are all sexual sinners, must fight sin. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, Jesus said, You have heard it that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus is gracious and merciful to forgive. Yet his forgiveness does not mean that we take our sin lightly. It does not mean that we can make peace with our sin, that we justify it, that we rationalize it, that we dismiss it. No, Jesus, who is merciful and gracious to forgive all our sin, commands us to make war with our sin, to fight it, to put it to death. Listen to the language he used. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Take your sin seriously. Fight it. Put it to death. Yes, there are times when we will stumble and fall. Yes, there are times when we will fail to resist and flee temptation. Yes, we will sin. But there is a difference between fighting sin and giving in to sin. When you're fighting sin, you are taking God's side against your sin. You are pleading with the Lord for his help and strength. You are confessing your sin and asking a brother or sister in Christ for help, support, and accountability. Brothers and sisters, we must be those who fight against their sins including our sins of sexual immorality. What is the alternative? Hebrews 10, 26 through 27 tells us, for if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We cannot go on sinning deliberately. We cannot excuse sex outside of marriage and just say that's just how it is. We cannot excuse an ongoing addiction to pornography and just accept it for what it is. No, we must call sin, sin. And we must fight it. We must resist it. We must flee it. We're all sinners. We'll all stumble and fall, but we must not give in to our sin and go on sinning deliberately. If you are a Christian, you are a sinner who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ, and this is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Christ forgives all your sins, past, present, and future. As those who have been saved by grace through faith, we are called to fight sin, resist temptation, 
and walk in repentance. We need God's help to be pure of heart. And as the Lord works in us to be pure of heart, we will walk in righteousness. After addressing the marriage bed and sexual immorality, the author addressed the love of money. He said, keep your life free from the love of money. The love of money can ensnare anyone. And we need to guard against it because the love of money can wreak havoc on your faith. What does the love of money look like? Well, it can look like desiring more money to feel secure. I want more money in my checking account. I want more money in my savings account. I want more money in my investment account. I want more money in my retirement account. I want more money because then I will be secure. It's trusting in money for that sense of security. Wanting more, then I'll have enough. It can also look like love of possessions, the things that money gets you. You want more money. It's not because you care about having money in and of itself, but you like what money buys. Possessions, things, upgrading your technology, having a bigger, better house, car, vacations, whatever. When you love these things, you set your heart on these things, you can be loving money. So we need to be aware that we are all prone to this. What is the antidote for the love of money? Be content with what you have. That seems like an impossible task in our culture. We are constantly bombarded with the messages, with the pressure, with the beliefs that having something else, having something more will make me happy, will make my life complete. Then I will be satisfied if I just have this, whether it's just interpersonal relationships, seeing things on social media, advertising. All of these things conspire against us. There are many forces at work in your life every single day to keep you from being anything except content with what you have. In verse 5, we are reminded. Let me ask this first. How do we be content with what we have? How do we do this thing that seems impossible just based on the world that we live in, the culture that surrounds us each and every day? How do we be content with what we have in verse 5, the author writes to remind us, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author was likely quoting from Joshua 1.5. The quote also reminds us of what Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. How does this fact that he is with us, help us with contentment? Because he is better. He is sweeter. He is more satisfying. The steadfast love of the Lord is better than 
life. In his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The best things the world has to offer don't compare to knowing God and dwelling with him. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, your desire for him grows and your love for the world diminishes. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Paul talked about this in his letter to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter four, he talked about the ups and downs in his life. Highs and lows being used by the Lord to preach the gospel, form miracles, start new churches. He got to see wonderful things. But he also got the tar beat out of him. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was slandered. People hated him. They tried to kill him. So he experienced good days and bad days, to put it mildly. But he said, in spite of all this, in spite of the highs and the lows, I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. What is it? What was his secret to being content? Philippians 4, 12, and 13, he said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Knowing Jesus, being united to Jesus, being in Jesus, that is the secret to contentment. I can be content in every situation, he said. When I have a lot, when I have a little, that doesn't change my contentment. Because my contentment is found in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's our union with Jesus Christ. It's the fact that we've been united to him by grace through faith that is the source of our contentment. Be content with what you have because he is with you and he is immeasurably better than anything you can gain in this world. The love of Jesus and the enjoyment of Jesus will expel the love of the world and the need to get more from your heart. When we delight ourselves in Jesus more than anything else, we will be content. How does our passage end? With a reminder of where our confidence comes from. Verse 6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Hebrew Christians needed to be reminded that the Lord was on their side. They faced persecution, they faced opposition. Enduring and following Jesus and his commands was hard. They needed to be encouraged to endure in these things. They also need to be reminded of where their confidence came from. They could continue. They could endure because the Lord is with 
them. We need to be reminded of this. God is bigger. We may face opposition. We may face trials. We may face suffering. Following Jesus may be hard, but the Lord is with us. What can man do to us? Kill us? Okay, we'll be with the Lord. No one can take from us the best thing that we have. No one can take the love of God, which he has poured into our hearts in Jesus Christ, the all-satisfying love of Christ. No man can take that from us. Therefore, we can say, what can man do to me? We don't fear man. We fear the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a precious, precious gift. You instruct us in your word. You expose our sin in our word. You lead us on the path of repentance through your word. You lead us in the way of righteousness. You make yourself known to us. You make your ways known to us that we might know you, that we might obey you, that we might enjoy you and glorify you. So we pray, Lord, that you will grow our love and our affection for you. And we pray that in turn we will live our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray that we will joyfully and sacrificially live out the implications of the glorious gospel. We thank you for this, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.